February is Black History Month, and the KVMR News Department is looking to share stories about the African-American pioneers of Nevada County. I'm Julia Jem. Last week, I and two of my colleagues took a trip to the Searles Historical Library in Nevada City. There, we read the Nevada County Historical Society's January 2023 Bulletin. I found it to tell an incredibly important story, and I've chosen to synopsize it for our listeners. I spoke with its author, historian Linda Jack, and she was kind enough to offer additional insight throughout my retelling of her article. You'll hear her voice in addition to mine as I recount the events outlined in the bulletin. According to the bulletin, Nevada County was once home to a significant community of African Americans. Some were brought to the goldfields as slaves by enslavers from southern states, some were escaped slaves, and some came as free people. They lived in Grass Valley, Nevada City, and in the smaller mining camps such as North Bloomfield, Rough and Ready, and French Corral. They worked as miners, laborers, shopkeepers, musicians, farmers, teachers, and clergymen. They built churches and schools, bought property, founded businesses, educated their children, and fought for civil rights. One such pioneer was Mary Ann Dorsey. In the beginning of the 19th century, a drop in the productivity of tobacco occurred in Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, while cotton cultivation skyrocketed following the invention of the cotton gin and the availability of newly seized indigenous land. This prompted a prominent shift in America's slave-based economy, with the price of slaves rising to heights never before seen. To meet the demand, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people were sold into the Deep South, and Virginia's profits from slave sales alone exceeded previous revenue from tobacco. During this time, slave trading became an increasingly widespread practice, and people, including young women like Mary, were sold and dispersed throughout the country. When Mary was sold out of Virginia into Livingston County, Missouri, she was already the mother of two enslaved sons, Bill and Tom. She was enslaved to a trader, Lewis Morrison Best, who was known locally as, quote, harsh and brutal by nature, a cruel master, a violent and dangerous man. So Missouri uh, was a slave state, uh, before the Civil War. And it was com- composed mostly of people from Kentucky and other states that came in. There were small farms, and people were uh, essentially lived with immediate, in immediacy with their slaves. And so that made for a different sort of relationship than on larger plantations, where slaves' uh, quarters could be, you know, fairly far from the main house. So those kind of small farms, there was a level of intimacy uh, just on day-to-day interactions with enslaved people and the, the enslavers, and that could make for um, sort of more uh, perhaps compatible relationships or more stressed relationships because of the proximity. It just happened that Lewis Best, according to his own white contemporaries, was a really bad man violent, uh, mean, and, and um, cruel. And so anyone who was enslaved uh, by him, and he was a traitor, so people came and went, uh, was likely subject to um, very harsh conditions. The discovery of gold in California prompted gold fever, which convinced many parties to relocate across the plains in search of wealth. Among those parties was Louis Best, his wife, and Mary. By October 1, 1850, they'd arrived in Nevada City, where Best purchased the Washington House, a hotel on Upper Main Street. Mary is thought to have worked at the hotel while also doing laundry for businessmen in the city. She gave birth to a son, Benjamin, on December 17th. His physical features implied that he was likely Best's child. 
most enslaved women and girls experienced some form of sexual harassment or rape from a male authority figure, with prolonged sexual abuse being common not only on large plantations, but also in small towns and rural farms. In Mary's case, the abuse was most certainly prolonged, given that again in 1853 she would bear him another child, this time a daughter, Elizabeth. This is a, an interesting topic because uh, there were social forces at play here that we might not think that much about. Um, on a large plantation, uh, an enslaver could uh, have a relationship, uh, a sexual, a forced sexual relationship with a slave, and the woman of the house, the mistress of the house, might not have to deal with that on a daily basis. On the other hand, there um, sometimes it was very contentious, and if anyone has seen the film Twelve Years a Slave, the story of Solomon Northrup, they will know that one of the key uh, tensions in that film is the mistress of the film and the slave Patsy, with whom her husband was obsessed. So it, they could be extremely violent, a retribution against the woman, although she had no choice in the matter. On the other hand, um, in other situations, the woman, the mistress, could choose to look the other way and just um, uh, pretend that she didn't know, even though the children may have resembled her husband. Uh, and then there probably were conditions in which uh, a wife might be grateful that that attention was not being brought to her. But the smaller the household, the closer they were in contact, the more likely that there would be uh, consequences for the enslaved woman. And also the sort of second social variable was that a white woman whose husband was fathering children with an enslaved woman, that was uh, shameful in society. And so she would have to endure in her social setting what her neighbors might be gossiping about. So it was altogether a fraught situation in most cases. Um, but surely um, the risks were high for Mary because she had already uh, seen two of her children left behind. So just the threat to separate her from her children was probably enough for most women just that they had to endure their situation, no matter how unpleasant or violent. Best participated in several crimes, ranging from murder to kidnapping. On the night of Sunday, January 19, 1851, a Dr. William Lennox was found shot with a rifle through his office window, mortally wounding him. Though, he did live long enough to accuse Best and Captain Fitzpatrick, another member of the party, of committing the crime. The two of them were arrested and released on a bond of $3,000 each until their court appearances. Mary had said off record that she'd witnessed Best go out at the time of the murder with his rifle, but because California law prohibited a black person from testifying against a white person in court, she was advised against coming forward. Ultimately, Best and Fitzpatrick were acquitted due to a lack of evidence. Then, in March of that year, the Washington house burned in a city fire. Best borrowed $2,000 to rebuild it and offered eight of his slaves as security. It was back in operation by May 3rd. In 1852, he found himself in trouble with the law once again when he was accused of kidnapping by a self-described free woman of color named Jane Jones. Jones alleged that Best kidnapped her on March 22nd, taking her to the home of another Missourian, John F. Gregory, in Nevada City. There, she said that she was, quote, tied, chained, and locked in. She was also forced to sign a note, claiming that she owed Gregory $500. In both March and April of 1852, Jones published a series of notices in the Nevada Journal which described her kidnapping. She asked the court to rule that she need not pay the note and asked them to protect her from further violence and injustice. 
However, as had been the case with Mary at the time of the Lennox murder trial, Jones could not testify in court against a white person. Unfortunately, there's no documentation as to how the court responded to Jones' request for protection and financial relief. By autumn of 1852, Best had decided that he wanted to return to Missouri, threatening to take Mary, Benjamin, and Elizabeth back into slavery. Mary found herself in a desperate need of a survival strategy. She chose to ask several of her laundry customers for assistance in raising the funds to buy her own and her children's freedom. Or, alternatively, she asked that her customers buy her and her children outright. I'm going to read a quote from Niles Searles. It was written in a letter to his cousin Cornelia following Mary's visit to his home on November 8, 1852. I considered leaving it out of this piece because it's admittedly uncomfortable to read, but after speaking with Linda, I found it important and valuable to include. Searles wrote the following. Received a call this morning from our colored washerwoman. Her master is about to return to the States, and she wishes us to raise money to purchase her freedom or to have a company of us buy her. Think I will take two shares. Female stock is above par in this country. Price $800. Two juvenile darkies thrown in. Fortunately, several sympathetic customers found themselves moved by Mary's desperation, and her price was met. Best sold his hotel to B.H. Collier and promptly returned to Missouri with his white family. Finally, Mary, Benjamin, and Elizabeth were free. Sometime before 1856, Mary married a black laundryman named Henry Dorsey in Nevada City. They had a daughter, Mary Elizabeth, on March 26th. Mary, Henry, Benjamin, Elizabeth, and Mary Elizabeth were documented as having lived together as a family in Nevada City, according to the June 25, 1860 federal census. In August of 1864, Mary was a member of a ladies' committee raising funds for the construction costs for the African Methodist Episcopal Church that would be built on North Pine Street. Unfortunately, that year, Mary had been ill for several months and died at age 53 on September 1st. Her obituary in the Nevada Daily Transcript reported that she was one of the oldest residents in the city and well-known to everyone in town as Aunt Mary. Her obituary ended with the following sentiment, quote, Poor Mary has gone. We hope to a better world. This was a hard world for her. She struggled for years to obtain money enough to buy her children held in slavery, but died without accomplishing her purpose. Sadly, Mary didn't live to see the end of the Civil War, which would free her enslaved children, nor did she live to witness her California-born children come of age. Following their mother's death, Benjamin, Elizabeth, and Mary Elizabeth remained with Henry, who had by 1866 remarried a woman named Alice. He'd later have seven children with her. Even after Mary's passing, the paternity of her children with Louis Bess continued to be a topic of interest. After Benjamin and Elizabeth attended the Color People's Ball at Hamilton Hall in Grass Valley on January 2, 1865, the editor of the Morning Union commented about the, quote, attendance of a boy and girl named Dorsey, who are as white as any children in the state, the girl having a magnificent head of light brown hair that a queen might envy, and altogether a handsome young woman. The boy, her brother, who is about 10 years of age, is so like a white child with long, light, straight hair that Mr. Hamilton, proprietor of the hall, was going to turn him out for kissing the aloe gals, under the impression that he was white. We have seen many such children sold on the block in New Orleans. How many shivs in this state would like to own such a slave as that girl? And she was born a slave in this very state. Her father being a Missourian named Host or Hess, who brought their mother, an octoroon, to this state in 49 as his slave, when California was a slave-holding territory. Their father deserting them, their mother married Dorsey, who is as black as the ace of spades. But she has since died and left them than their own white father, who, had he been in the South, would have sold them, 
as do thousands of such children's parents there. Only think of the infamy of a system that permits such a disgusting traffic. Benjamin no longer lived with Henry and Alice by 1870, and was instead working as a laborer on the farm of A.L. Chandler in Sutter County. Here, he was listed in the census as white, although in later records he was recorded as mulatto or black. In 1880, he married Isabel Burroughs and worked as a porter at a store in Marysville, Yuba County. Together, they had four children. Benjamin died at age 37 on May 20, 1888. Mary's daughter Elizabeth disappears from public records following the 1860 census. Her other daughter, Mary Elizabeth, married a man named Benjamin Asa Longris in Woodland, Yolo County, on October 4, 1878. Together, they had nine children and became pillars of the community. Their children excelled in athleticism and in music. The entire family participated in the Mary Players, a singing group that performed regularly at the Woodland Opera House. In 1897, Mary Elizabeth received news that she was among the beneficiaries of a $10,000 bequest, the equivalent of $400,000 today, that had been left to her father, who died in 1893. It came from a Dr. Hall, who Henry had been enslaved to in the District of Columbia before he came to California. Mary Elizabeth died at age 67 on February 13, 1923, surrounded by her family. She was survived by her husband and all but one of her children. Her obituary on page one of the local paper recognized her as one of the black pioneers of Yolo County. For some Californians, it's difficult to acknowledge that slavery's history is also our history, but stories like Mary's remind us that hard history is not hopeless history. Here's Linda Jack and her thoughts on this hard history. In recent years, the topic of slavery has become so politically contentious. Um, pundits, educators, parents, members of the public— all have weighed in on the value of learning about slavery, whether we should learn about it at all, whether we can learn parts that are offensive or make people feel bad, or whether we should only focus on the triumphal parts of it, the Emancipation Proclamation, um, escaped slaves like Harriet Tubman. Um, there are plenty of heroes and heroines um, who got out of slavery, Frederick Douglass, you know, should we focus on those people uh, and their triumphs or talk about the average person? But certainly of the 4 million people that were enslaved uh, at the end of the Civil War, a tiny percentage of them escaped. A tiny percentage of them went on to write a narrative like Frederick Douglass. So um, my own feeling is that a story like Mary's is important because uh, however far down she was in the sort of level of fame or fortune, uh, she had agency. She took charge of her situation and did what she could to better her life and her children. So I think it's very important to um, recognize that slavery is hard history, hard to comprehend the inhumanity that defined it. It's hard to discuss the violence that sustained it. And it's hard to teach the ideology of white supremacy that justified it. And like some of our local citizens in Nevada City, it's hard to learn about those who abided it. Um, and for us, those of us in the West, in California, we need to remember that that story is our story as well. So Mary's uh, story shows us that you can have hard history that is also hopeful history. 
uh, her ability to control her own uh, future and that of her children is a hopeful story. And there were thousands of those stories all throughout slavery and here in Nevada County. And as the historian Hakeem Jeffries wrote, uh, there is no greater hope to be found in American history than in African Americans' resistance to slavery. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem.